10. Return of the family to the village. The guests drink basi, sing and dance, and usually several spirits are summoned by the mediums. The next morning two pinoasan are constructed in the yard. Each supports a plate containing beads. A string of beads is suspended from one of the poles, and a jar of basi is placed beneath. In front of them the mediums call the spirits, then offer the heart, livers, and intestines, while they call out, take me and do not injure the people. The final act of the ceremony is to construct the spirit raft bong, load it with food, and set it afloat on the river, so that all the spirits may see and know what has been done. In addition to the regular pay for their services, the mediums divide the jaw of a pig and carry the portions home with them, as their protection against lightning, and the spirits whose hostility they may have incurred. Binaquau, this ceremony, like the one just described, seems to be limited to the San Juan region and is given under similar circumstances. The room is decorated as usual, and a bound pig is laid in the center. This is known as, the exchange, since it is given in place of the patient's life. Two mediums place betel nut on the animal, then stroke it with oil, saying, you make the liver favorable, i.e. give a good omen. After a time they begin summoning the spirits, and from then until late evening the guests divide their time between the mediums and the liquor jars. Soon all are in a jovial mood, and before long are singing the praises of their hosts, or are greeting visiting spirits as old-time friends. The pig is killed early next morning, and its liver is eagerly examined to learn whether or no the patient is destined to recover. A part of the flesh is placed on the house rafters, for the use of the spirits, while the balance is cooked and served. Following the meal, the gongs and drums are brought up into the house, and the people dance or sing until the mediums appear ready to summon the spirits. The first to come is Sabian, the guardian of the dogs. He demands that eight plates and a coconut shall be filled with blood and rice, another shell is to be filled with uncooked rice, in which a silver coin is hidden, and finally a bamboo dog through must be provided. When his demands are met, he begins to call, Come, my dogs, come and eat. Later the blood and rice are placed in the through, and are carried to the edge of the town, where they are left. This done. The spirit pierces the pig's liver with a spear and, placing it on a shield, dances about the room. Finally, stopping beside the mat, he lays them on the patient's stomach. The next and final act is to scrape up a little of the liver with a small head axe, and to place this, mixed with oil, on the sick person. On the third and last day, the medium leads a big dog to the edge of the village, and then kills it with a club. A piece of the animal's ear is cut off, is wrapped in a cloth and is hung around the patient's neck as a protection against evil, and as a sign to all spirits that this ceremony has been held. Throughout the rest of the day many spirits visit the mediums, and at such a time Kakalanan is sure to appear to give friendly advice. The final act is to set the spirit raft afloat on the stream. Chapter VI Social Organization Government The village The village is the social unit within which there are no clans, no political, or other divisions. The Tingian are familiar with the Igro town, made up of several auto but there is no indication that they have ever had such an institution. The head of the village is known as Laki. He is usually a man past middle age whose wealth and superior knowledge have given him the confidence of his people. He is chosen by the older men of the village, and holds his position for life unless he is removed for cause. It is possible that, at his death, his son may succeed him, but this is by no means certain. The Lakhi is supposed to be well versed in the customs of the ancestors, 
and all matters of dispute or questions of policy are brought to him. If the case is one of special importance he will summon the other old men, who will deliberate and decide the question at issue. They have no means of enforcing their decisions other than the force of public opinion. But since an offender is ostracized, until he has met the conditions imposed by the elders, their authority is actually very great. Should a lucky deal unjustly with the people, or attempt to alter long-established customs, he would be removed from office and another be selected in his stead. No salary or fees are connected with this office, the holder receiving his reward solely through the esteem in which he is held by his people. In former times two or three villages would occasionally unite to form a loose union, the better to resist a powerful enemy. But with the coming of more peaceful times such beginnings of confederacies have vanished. During the Spanish regime attempts were made to organize the pagan communities and to give titles to their officers. But these efforts met with little success. Under American rule local self-government, accompanied by several elective offices, has been established in many towns. The contest for office and government recognition of the officials is tending to break down the old system and to concentrate the power in the president or mayor. It is probable that the early Tingian settlement consisted of one or more closely related groups. Even today the family ties are so strong that it was found possible, in compiling the genealogical tables, to trace back the family history five or six generations. These families are not distinguished by any totems, guardian spirits, or stories of supernatural origin, but the right to conduct the more important ceremonies is hereditary. Descent is traced through both the male and female lines and inheritance is likewise through both sexes. There are no distinguishing terms for relations on the father's or mother's side, nor are there other traces of matriarchal institutions. Families of means attain a social standing above that of their less fortunate townsmen, but there is no sharp stratification of the community into noble and serf, such as was coming into vogue along many parts of the coast at the time of the Spanish conquest. Neither has slavery ever gained a foothold with this people. The wealthy often loan rice to the poor, and exact usury of about 50%. Payment is made in service during the period of planting and harvesting, so that the labor problem island to a large extent, solved for the landholders. However, they customarily join the workers in the fields and take their share in all kinds of labor. The concubines, known as Potosiev, page 283, are deprived of certain rights, and they are held somewhat in contempt by the other women. But they are in no sense slaves, they may possess property, and their children may become leaders in Tingian society. The only group which is sharply separated from the mass is composed of the mediums, and they are distinctive only during the ceremonial periods. At other times they are treated in all respects as other members of the community. On three occasions the writer has found men dressing like women, doing women's work, and spending their time with members of that sex. Information concerning these individuals has always come by accident, the people seeming to be exceedingly reticent to talk about them. In play XXXVI is shown a man in woman's dress, who has become an expert potter. The explanation given for the disavowal of his sex is that he donned women's clothes during the Spanish regime to escape road work, and has since then retained their garb. Equally unsatisfactory and unlikely reasons were advanced for the other cases mentioned. It should be noted that similar individuals have been described from Zambales, Pane, from the Sabanan of Mindanao, and from Borneo. It has been suggested, with considerable probability, that at least a part of these are hermaphrodites. But in Borneo, where they act as priests, 
Roth states that they are insects before assuming their roles, laws, law, government, and custom are synonymous. Whatever the ancestors did is right, and hence has religious sanction. The Lakhi and his advisors will give their decisions according to the decrees of the past, if that is possible. But when precedent is lacking, they will deliberate and decide on a course. The following may be taken as typical of the laws or customs which regulate the actions of the people, within a group, toward one another. Rules governing the family. A man may have only one wife, but he may keep concubines. If the wife's relatives suspect that a mistress is causing the husband's affections to wane, they may hold the nog in or trial of affection, cf. Page 282. And if their charges are sustained, the husband must pay them a considerable amount, and, in addition, stand all the expenses of the gathering. If it is shown that they are not justified in their suspicions, the expense falls on the accusers. The wife may bring a charge of cruelty or laziness against her husband, and if it is substantiated, he will be compelled to complete the marriage agreement and give the woman her freedom and faithfulness on the part of the wife, or a betrothed girl justifies the aggrieved in killing one or both of the offenders. He may, however, be satisfied by having the marriage gift returned to him, together with a fine and a decree of divorce. A man who has a child by an unmarried woman, not a potent, must give the girl's people about 100 pesos, and must support the infant. Later the child comes into his keeping, and is recognized as an heir to his estate. Marriage is prohibited between cousins, between a man and his adopted sister his sister-in-law, or mother-in-law, union with a second cousin is also tabooed, it is said that offenders would be cut off from the village, no one would associate with them, and their children would be disinherited, a widow may remarry after the layog ceremony cf, page 290, but all the property of her first husband goes to his children, if a wife has neglected her husband during his final illness, she may be compelled to remain under two blankets, while the body is in the house cf. Page 286. Unless she pays a fine of 10 or 15 pesos to his family, children must care for and support infirm parents. Should there be no children, this duty falls upon the nearest relative. Inheritance. Although a price is paid for the bride, the Tengian woman is in no sense a slave. She may inherit property from her parents, hold it through life, and pass it on to her children. Following the death of a man, Enough is taken from his estate to pay up any part of the marriage agreement which may still be due, and the balance is divided among his children. If there are no children, it is probable that his personal possessions will go to his father or mother, if they are still living, otherwise, to his brothers and sisters. However, the old men in council may decide that the wife is entitled to a share, should she remarry and bear children to her second husband, she cannot give any part of this property to them but upon her death it goes to the offspring of the first marriage, or reverts to the relatives. Land is divided about equally between boys and girls, but the boys receive the major part of the animals, and the girls their mother's beads. Oftentimes the old man will give the oldest child the largest share, since he has helped his parents longest. Whatever the husband and wife have accumulated in common during their married life is divided, and the man's portion is disposed of, as just indicated. Illegitimate children and those of a poet receive a share of their father's property, but not in the same proportion as the children of the wife. No part of the estate goes to a concubine unless, in the judgment of the old men, it is necessary to provide for her, because of sickness or infirmity, 
transfer and sharing of property. Land and houses are seldom transferred, except at the death of the owner. But should a sale or trade be desired, the parties to the contract will make the bargain before the lucky and old men, who thus become witnesses. A feast is given at such a time, and is paid for by either the seller or the buyer. The sale or barter of carabao, horses, valuable jars, and beads may be witnessed in this manner, but the transfer of personal property is purely a matter between the parties concerned. If a man works the property of another, he furnishes the seed and labor, and the crop is divided. If an owner places his animals in the care of another, the first of the increase goes to him, the second to the caretaker. Should an animal die, the caretaker must skin it, and give the hide to the owner, after which he is freed from responsibility, but he is liable for the loss, theft, or injury to his charges, murder and theft. The relatives of a murdered man may kill his assailant without fear of punishment, but, if they are willing, the guilty party may settle with them by paying in Chinese jars, carabao, or money. The usual payment varies from 50 to 100 pesos. A thief is compelled to make restitution, and is also subject to a small fine. The practice of evil magic, and the breaking of a taboo, are considered serious crimes, but as they have been treated under religion and magic, they will not be repeated here. Lying, cheating, breaches of etiquette, falling outside the realm of law are those things which may be considered right and wrong, but the infraction of which carries with it no penalty. Lying, for instance, is not bad, if it is done to protect yourself or a friend, but falsifying without purpose is mean and to be despised. Cheating is not wrong. Your ability to outweep the other person is proof that you are the smarter man. It is bad manners for a man to sit with his legs far apart or to expose all of his cloud, or for a woman to sit on the floor with one leg drawn up. A person should not walk about while others are singing or dancing. Basie should never be drunk, until it has been offered to everyone present, especially the elders. Before eating, a person should invite all in the room to join him, even though he does not expect them to accept. A visitor should never eat with the wife of another during his absence. Always call before entering a house. Never enter a dwelling, when the owner is away, and has removed the ladder from the door. Never enter a village dirty, stop and bathe at the spring before going up. Only dogs enter the houses without bathing. The village play XXXVII. A village generally consists of two or three settlements, situated near together, and under the authority of a single lucky or headman. There is no plan or set arrangement for the dwellings or other structures. But, as a rule, the house, spirit structure, and perhaps corrals are clustered closely together, while at the edge of the settlement are the rice granaries and garden plots. Formerly a double bamboo stockade surrounded each settlement, but in recent years these have disappeared, and at the time of our visit only one town, a bang, was so protected. The dwellings vary in size and shape. They conform in general to two types. The first and most common is a single room with a door at one end opening off from an uncovered porch plate XXXIX. The second consists of three rooms, or rather two rooms, between which is a porch or entryway, all under one roof. There is seldom an outer door to this entryway, but each room has its own door, and oftentimes windows opening onto it, so that one has the feeling that we have here two houses joined by the covered porch. In such buildings this entryway is a convenient place for hanging nets or for drying tobacco. In one room is the hearth, the water pots, and dishes, while the other is the family sleeping room. 
The construction of the dwelling is shown in plates XLXLI. A number of heavy hardwood posts are sunk deeply into the ground and project upward 10 or more feet. At a height of 4 or 5 feet above the ground, crossbeams are lashed or pegged to form the floor supports, while at the tops are other beams on which the roof rests. Plate XL shows the skeleton of this roof so plainly that further description is unnecessary. This framework, generally constructed on the ground, is raised onto the upright timbers, and is lashed in place. A closely woven mat of bamboo strips, or of bamboo beaten flat, covers each side of the roof, and on this the thatch is laid. Bundles of cogone grass are spread clear across the roof. A strip of bamboo is laid at the upper ends, and is lashed to the mat below. A second row of thatch overlaps the top of the first, and thus a waterproof covering is provided. Another type of roofing is made by splitting long bamboo poles, removing the sectional divisions and then lashing them to the framework. The first set is placed with the concave sides up, and runs from the ridge pole to a point a few inches below the framework, so as to overhang it somewhat. A second series of half bamboos is laid convex side up, the edges resting in the concavity of those below, thus making an arrangement similar to a tiled roof. For the side walls this tiled type of construction is commonly used plate LXXVIII. A coarse bamboo mat is likewise employed while a crude interweaving of bamboo strips is by no means uncommon. Such a wall affords little protection against a driving rain or wind, but the others are quite effective. Well-to-do families often have the side walls and floors of their houses made of hardwood boards, since planks are, or have been until recently, cut out with knives, head axes, or adzes. Much time and wealth is consumed in constructing such a dwelling, when completed. It is less well adapted to the needs of the people than the structures just described, but its possession is a source of gratification to the owner, and aids in establishing him as a man of affairs in his town. The floor is made of poles tied to the side beams, and on these strips of bamboo are laid so as to leave small cracks between them. This assists in the house cleaning, as all dirt and refuse is swept through the openings onto the ground. When the floor is made of wood, it is customary to leave one corner to be finished off in the bamboo slits, and it is here that the mother gives birth to her children. This is not compulsory, but it is custom, and indicates clearly that the plank floor is a recent introduction. Entrance to the dwelling is by means of a bamboo ladder which is raised at night, or when the family is away. Windows are merely square holes over which a bamboo mat is fitted at night, but the door is a bamboo-covered framework which turns in wooden sockets. Such a house offers no barriers to mosquitoes, flies, flying roaches, or white ants, while rats, scorpions, and centipedes find friendly shelter in the thatch roof. Quite commonly large but harmless snakes are encouraged to take up their residence in the cook room, as their presence induces the rats to move elsewhere. Little house lizards are always present, and not infrequently a large lizard makes its home on the ridge pole, and from time to time gives its weird cry. The ground beneath the house is often enclosed with bamboo slats, and is used for storage purposes, or a portion may be used as a chicken coop. It is also customary to bury the dead beneath the dwelling, and above the grave are the boxes in which are placed supplies for the spirits of the deceased. With some modification this description of the Tengian house and village would apply to those of the western Kalinga and the Apayao, and likewise the Christian natives of the coast but a very different type of dwelling and grouping is found among the neighboring Idro. It is also to be noted that we do not find today any trace of tree dwellings, 
such as were described by Logiernier at the time of his visit scarcely a century ago. Elevated watchhouses are placed near to the mountain fields, and it is possible that in times of great danger people might have had similar places of refuge in or near to their villages, but the old men emphatically deny that they were ever tree dwellers, and there is nothing in the folk tales to justify such a belief, on the contrary, the tales indicate that the type of dwelling found today, was that of former times, house furnishings, the average house has only one room, inside the door, at the left, one usually finds the stove, three stones sunk in a box of ashes or dirt, or a similar device of clay figure 5, number 1, above the fire is suspended a hanger on which are placed dishes and food, in order that they may not be disturbed by insects, along the wall stands a small cauldron, jars for water and rice, and the large Chinese jars, collateral as a general rule heirlooms or marriage gifts, these are sometimes used for basi, but more often they contain broken rice, cotton, or small articles. Above the jars is a rack or hanger on which dishes or coconut shells are placed. At one end of the room a set of pegs, deer horns, or a cord supports a variety of clothes, blankets, a woman's switch, and perhaps a man's belt. The sleeping mats either hang here or occupy a rack of their own. Below the cord stand chests secured in early years through trade with the Chinese. In these are the family treasures, valuable beads, coins, blankets, ceremonial objects, and the like. Piled on the boxes is a variety of pillows, for no Tingian house is complete without a number of these plate alexvii. The other house furnishings, consisting of a spinning wheel, loom, coconut rasp, and clothes beater figure 5, number 10 find space along the other wall, behind the door, except in the valley towns, stand the man's spear and shield. Above or near the door will be the spirit offering in the form of a small hanger or a miniature shield fastened against the wall. The center of the floor affords a place for working, eating, and sleeping. If there are small children in the family a cradle or jumper will be found suspended from a beam or a bamboo pole placed across one corner of the room cf. Page 272. The type of jars made by the Tingian is shown in figure 5. Number 7. While those of foreign introduction have been fully described in a previous publication, the native jars are used both for cooking and as water containers. With them will be found pot rings and lifters. The first is a simple ring of plated bamboo, which fits on the head or sets on the floor, and forms a support for the rounded bottom of the jar. The second figure 5, number 3 consists of a large rattan loop, which is placed over the neck of the jar. The hands are drawn apart, and the weight closes the loop causing it to grip the jar. Long bamboo tubes with sections removed are used as water containers, while smaller sections often serve as cups or dippers. Gourds are also used in this manner. Figure 5, NOS, 8, 9. Food is removed from the jars with spoons and ladles. Figure 6 made of wood or coconut shells, but they are never put to the mouth. Meat is cut up into small pieces, and is served in its own juice. The diner takes a little cooked rice in his fingers and with this DIPs or scoops the meat and broth into his mouth. Greens are eaten in the same manner. Have coconut shells serve both as cups and as dishes. Figure 5. Number 6. Wooden dishes are likewise used, but they are employed chiefly in ceremonies for the feeding of the spirits or to hold the rice from which a bride and groom receive the augury of the future. Figure 5. NOS. 4-5. Baskets. Varying considerably in material, size and type, are much used and are often scattered about the dwelling or, 
as in the case of the men's carrying baskets, are hung on pegs set into the walls. Somewhere about the house will be found a coconut rasp figure 5. Number 11. When this is used, the operator kneels on the wooden standard, and draws the half coconut toward her over the teeth of the blade. The inside of the shell is thus cleaned and prepared for use as an eating or drinking dish. Torches or bamboo lamps formerly supplied the dwellings with light. Lamps consisting of a section of bamboo filled with oil and fitted with a cord wick are still in use, but for the most part they have been superseded by tin lamps of Chinese manufacture. Oil for them is extracted from crushed seeds of the Tau Tau Jatropha Grandulifera rocks. A very necessary article of house furnishing is the fire-making device. In many instances, the housewife will go to a neighboring dwelling and borrow a light rather than go to the trouble of building a fire. But if that is not convenient, a light may be secured by one or two methods. The first is by flint and steel, a method which is probably of comparatively recent introduction. The second and older is one which the Tengian shares with all the neighboring tribes. Two notches are cut through a section of bamboo, and tree cotton is placed below them. A second section of bamboo is cut to a sharp edge, and this is rubbed rapidly back and forth in the notches until the friction produces a spark, which when caught on tinder can be blown into a flame. At the door of the house will be found a foot whiter figure 5. Number 12 made of rice straw drawn through an opening cut in a stick or it may consist of coconut husks fastened together to make a crude mat, while nearby is the brew made of rice straw or grass, rice mortars, pestles, and similar objects are found beneath the dwellings, the village spring, each village is situated near to a spring or on the banks of a stream, in the latter case deep holes are dug in the sands, and the water that seeps in is used for household purposes, in the morning, a number of women and girls gather at the springs, carrying with them the plates and dishes used in the meals, also garments which need to be laundered. The pots and dishes are thoroughly scoured with sand and water, applied with a bundle of rice straw or grass. The garments to be washed are laid in the water, generally in a little pool near to the main spring or beside the stream. Ashes from rice straw are then mixed with water and, after being strained through a bunch of grass, are applied to the cloth in place of soap. After being thoroughly soaked, the cloth is laid on a clean stone, and is beaten with a stick or wooden paddle. The garment is again rinsed, and later is hung up on the fence near the dwelling to dry. Before returning to her home, the woman fills her pots with water, and then takes her bath in a pool below the main spring plate XLII. All garments are removed except the girdle and cloud, and then water, dipped up in a coconut shell, is poured onto the face, shoulders, and body. In some cases sand is applied to the body, and is rubbed in with the hand or a stone, rinsing water is applied and the garments are put back on without drying the body. Everyone, men, women, and children, takes a daily bath, and visitors will always stop to bathe at the spring or river before entering a village. Promiscuous bathing is common, and is accepted as a matter of course, but there is no indication of embarrassment or self-consciousness. When she returns to the village, the woman will often be seen carrying one or two jars of water on her head, her washing under her arm, while a child sets astride her hip or lies against her back plate XLII. Chapter VII Warfare, Hunting, and Fishing Head Hunting and Warfare are practically synonymous. Today both are suffering a rapid decline, and a head is seldom taken in the valley of the Abra. In the mountain district old feuds are still maintained, and sometimes lead to a killing and here to the ancient funerary rites are still carried out in their entirety on rare occasions. However, 
This peaceful condition is not of long standing. In every village the older men tell with pride of their youthful exploits, of the raids they indulged in the heads they captured, and they are still held in high esteem as men who fought in the villages of their enemies. During the time of our stay in Abra, the villages of the Biklot Valley were on bad terms with the people of the neighboring Itman Valley, and were openly hostile to the Idril on the eastern side of the mountain range. Minabu and Abang were likewise hostile to their Idril neighbors, and the latter village was surrounded with a double bamboo stockade, to guard against a surprise attack. Minabu at this time anticipated trouble with the warriors of Bilatok and Biso, as a result of their having killed six men from those towns. The victims had ostensibly come down to the Abra River to fish, but, judging by previous experience, the Tengian believed them to be in search of heads, and acted accordingly. This feud is of old standing and appears to have grown out of a dispute over the hunting grounds on Mount Posoe, the great peak which rises only a few miles from Minabo. There have been many clashes between the rival hunters, the most serious of which occurred in 1889, when the Tengian had 29 of their number killed and lost 25 heads to the Idru of Biso. The people of Igzimu and Balanda suffered defeat in a raid carried on against Dagara in 1907, and at the time of our visit a number of the warriors still bore open wounds received in that fight. In the same year at least three unsuccessful attacks, probably by low warriors, were made against individuals of Laganilin, Likuan, and Likub. Accounts of earlier travelers offer undoubted proof that head hunting was rampant a generation ago, while the folk tales feature the taking of heads as one of the most important events in Tengian life. The first incentive for head taking is in connection with funeral rites. According to ancient custom it was necessary, following the death of an adult, for the men of the village to go out on a head hunt, and until they had done so, the relatives of the deceased were barred from wearing good clothing from taking part in any pastimes or festivals, and their food was of the poorest and meanest quality. To remove this ban, the warriors would don white headbands, arm themselves, and sally forth either to attack a hostile village or to ambush an unsuspecting foe. Neighboring villages were, out of necessity, usually on good terms, but friendly relations seldom extended beyond the second or third settlement, a distance of 10 or 15 miles. Beyond these limits most of the people were considered enemies and subject to attack, while such a raid was both justifiable and necessary to the village in which a death had occurred, it was considered an unprovoked attack by the raided settlement, a challenge and an insult which had to be avenged, thus feuds were established, some of which ran through many years, and resulted in considerable loss of life, a town, which had lost to another a greater number of heads than they had secured was in honor bound to even the score, and thus another cause for battle was furnished. The man who actually succeeded in taking a head was received with great acclaim upon his retour.